Hi, everyone, and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's time for your Midweek Bible Study 2024 edition. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It is awesome to be with you once again today. Thanks for taking time to join us. Today is Wednesday, January 10th. Last week, we began our new study in the book of Hebrews. In chapter one, we talked about Jesus Christ is God's son and Christ is greater than the angels. Today in chapter two, we'll talk about a warning against drifting and Jesus the man. But before we get to all of that, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, thank you for the privilege we have once again to gather to study your word. Lord, teach us today. I just know there's going to be great things that are going to come out of your word. There always are. And I'm expecting more of that today. We give you the honor and glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. All right, turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to start with verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. 1 to 4. And let's find out about a warning against drifting. What that's all about. Here we go, starting with verse 1. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we have heard, or we may drift away from it. For the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm, and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself, and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. Let's start with verse 1, shall we? Here we go. So we must listen very carefully to the truth we've heard, or we may drift away from it. Our first question today is this. What would cause a believer to drift away from the truth of the gospel? Now, I'm sure the writer had a lot of things on his mind when he wrote these words. I know I've got several thoughts in my mind. As soon as I read that, I had all kinds of thoughts coming into my mind about why Christians drift away. Here's a couple of reasons I came up with. First of all, they fail to grow spiritually. When we fail to grow in our knowledge of God's word, we give the devil an avenue into our lives. I think this is exactly what the writer was getting at here, as we are to listen very carefully to the truth. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Another reason why Christians drift away, I think, is this. They fail to have a consistent prayer life. Christians who don't regularly communicate with God eventually drift away from him. Another reason is, they fail to associate with other believers. In doing so, they rob themselves of the blessings that are actually found in staying connected. Also, they develop hard hearts to the truth of God's word. How does a heart become hardened? Well, sin. Sin causes hearts to grow hard, especially continual and unrepentant sin. And lastly, they fall into the trap of worldliness. They begin putting the things of the world before the things of God. But I didn't stop there. How can you avoid drifting away from the gospel? Well, let's look at a couple of things. First, commit to spiritual growth. I'd encourage you to read 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Read and study your Bible continually. Seek out opportunities to hear gospel preaching and take advantage of the many online spiritual tools that are available today. Next, commit to a consistent prayer life. I would encourage you to read 1 Thessalonians 5.17 and Colossians 4.2. Consistently carve out quiet moments to talk with God. Next, stay connected with fellow believers. There are a vast array of ways to encourage one another these days. We can call, text, email, through social media, and of course, visiting in person. And lastly, always put God first. 
I would encourage you Matthew 6:33, Matthew 10:37, Matthew 22:37. Love God more than anyone else because he first loved you. Next is verse 2. For the message God delivered through the angels has always stood firm and every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. The question is, here the writer points out the consequence of drifting from the truth of the gospel. What is it that he says? Do you see where it says here in this verse, the message God delivered through the angels? Take a look at that. Because the message God delivered through the angels, it refers to the Old Testament law. The account of angels delivering God's law and putting into effect was part of Jewish and early Christian teaching. God gave the law to govern the lives of Old Testament believers. Those who believed God and obeyed his instructions received his blessing, while those who rebelled discovered that every violation of the law and every act of disobedience was punished. Throughout the Old Testament, God enforced these laws by blessing people who followed him and condemned those who rejected him. Next, let's look at verses 3 and 4 together. So what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself and then delivered to us by those who heard him speak? And God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit whenever he chose. The question is, in these verses, the writer continues to give supporting evidence that Jesus' message surpassed the angel's message. What evidence does the writer give us and how was it confirmed? Well, as we just talked about in the previous verse, Old Testament believers who followed God received blessings and those who disobeyed God received punishment. If that was true for the promise brought by angels, then no one who is indifferent to the message will escape God's punishment. Three witnesses prove the authenticity of this great salvation, as the verse says, and why the readers should not be indifferent to it. Listen to this. Look at verse 3. Here's the first witness, the Lord Jesus himself. Not angels or people announced this salvation. It was the Lord. Next, also in verse 3, those who heard him speak. Those were eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry, passed on Jesus' message as well. These readers, and apparently the author, had not seen Christ in the flesh. They're like us. We've not seen Jesus personally. We base our belief in Jesus on the eyewitness accounts as recorded in the Bible. And lastly, God confirmed the message by giving signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, the verse says. Now, these were not given by God to glorify the apostles or to awe the people. Instead, God demonstrated his power through the apostles with these extraordinary events, thereby testifying to the truth of the great salvation that the apostles proclaimed. These gifts, they serve as continuing reminders to believers across the ages that the gospel of salvation is true. It's been announced and confirmed and many testify to its truth and power even today. Now to drift away from this truth, that would be both foolish and disastrous. Next in verses five through 18, let's talk about Jesus, the man, starting with verse five. And furthermore, it's not angels who will control the future world we're talking about. The question is, what future world is the writer talking about in this verse and who controls it? The future world refers to the future kingdom that Christ initiated and will fully inherit at his second coming. The future world will not be controlled by angels, but by Christ. Angels will continue to serve as God's servants. These words continue to emphasize the superiority of Christ over the angels. Now next, I want to look at verses 6, 7, and 8 together. For in one place the scriptures say, What are mere mortals that you should think about them, or a son of man that you should care for him? 
Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. The question is, in these verses, the writer compares and contrasts humans and God's power. What's he saying here with these verses? Well, these verses clearly substantiate the words of the previous verse, verse 5, by quoting from Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4, which says, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care for them? The psalm tells of human beings' unimportance as well as their greatness. Now, compared to God's power and the majesty of his creation, people are insignificant. Yet, according to Genesis 1.27, God crowned people with glory and honor when he created them in his image. God also gave people the responsibility and tremendous authority over all things. God intended this key role for people. Now, the phrase, you made them a little lower than the angels, it shows human superiority over all other creation except the angels. But due to their sin, people failed to live up to their potential, correctly fulfill the responsibility, or wisely use their authority. Psalm 8 originally referred to humanity and its role in creation, and the psalm was regarded as messianic. The author may have been thinking about the double meaning included in the words Son of Man, showing that Jesus fulfilled the role and destiny originally commissioned to people. What humans could not do, Jesus did. Although God gave humans the authority over all things, sin entered the world and inhibited them from fulfilling this command. We have not yet seen all things happen because we'll not experience perfection in this world. We don't yet see Jesus reigning on earth, but we can picture him in his heavenly glory. He is Lord of all, and one day, beloved, one day he will rule on the earth as he does now in heaven. Verse 9 is next. What we do see is Jesus, who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now here's the question. Though we've not seen what the writer of Psalm 8 wrote about, what does the writer say we do see? The writer says clearly that we do see Jesus. Do you see that? The words are, what we do see is Jesus. In other words, the words from Psalm 8, which applied to humans, is now applied to the Messiah. Jesus became human, made a little lower than the angels. He was the only one who lived the human life as intended, sinless and in perfect relationship and fellowship with God. Before Christ, the words of Psalm 8 had not yet been fully realized, but the words were completely fulfilled in Christ. Jesus was not made lower than the angels in his rank or position, but he is described this way because he became part of the physical world. In other words, he became human. Because of Christ's perfect life and sacrifice for sins, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Christ was worthy to receive these rewards because he suffered death for us. The writer elaborates further by saying, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus lived and died physically. Jesus died for everyone in the world, but not everyone will be saved. The only way for people to be saved and receive God's reward is to, as it says in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Next is verse 10. It says, God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. What does this verse say about God and Jesus? That's our question. 
Christ, the perfect leader, he was able to fulfill what no other human was able to fulfill. The phrase, many children, it refers back to verses 6, 7, and 8. Although people were commissioned to rule the earth, their sin kept them from the task. Jesus' sacrifice brings his human brothers and sisters into glory that one day will be restored to people in the future kingdom. Because God made everything, he determines what sacrifice is necessary for sin. He, the creator of the world, determined what was needed for salvation. Through Jesus' suffering, God could bring people into their salvation. Jesus didn't need to suffer for his own salvation because he was God. His perfect obedience, which led him down the road of suffering, demonstrates that he was the complete sacrifice for us. Through suffering, Jesus completed the work necessary for our salvation. Next, verse 11, it says, So now Jesus and the ones he makes holy have the same Father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Here's our question. What does this verse say about our relationship with God the Father and Christ the Son? What jumps out to me right off the bat is that Christians are the ones he makes holy. That's what it says. This action is once for all, beloved. We've been made holy, set apart for God's service. Our sin was poured into Christ at his crucifixion. His righteousness is poured into us at our conversion. This is what Christians mean by Christ's atonement for sin. While God sees us as completely holy through the sacrifice of his son, we must grow in our holiness as we live for God throughout our lives. We who've been set apart for God's service, cleansed and made holy, in other words, sanctified by Jesus, now have the same father as Jesus does. Because God has adopted all believers as his children, Jesus is not ashamed to call believers his brothers and sisters. So grateful for that, aren't you? Next is verse 12. It says, For he said to God, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Here's the question. This is the first of three quotations the writer uses from the Old Testament to show the relationship between Jesus and believers. What do you think is the writer's point in this verse? While on the cross, Jesus quoted from the opening words of Psalm 22, which said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? These words give way to words of praise at the end of verse 12. Jesus' death and humiliation on earth ended in victory, declaring the wonder of God's name to those who believed. To proclaim a name, it means to reveal the character of that person. Attributing these words to Jesus means that Jesus, through his humanity, revealed God's character. The phrase, among your assembled people, quoted here from the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, has the same Greek word as the New Testament word, translated church. Next, verse 13, it says, He also said, I will put my trust in him, that is, I and the children God has given me. Our question is, this verse contains the writer's second quotation from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 through 19. I'd encourage you to take a read of that if you have a moment. What does this verse mean, verse 13? Well, the writer applies these verses to Christ, which further shows Christ's identification with humanity. Isaiah was persecuted and his message rejected by the people. Isaiah encouraged the people not to listen to false advice, but to God alone. And like Isaiah, Christ put his trust in God the Father. Christ readily accepts his relationship with the children God has given to him. These are his spiritual children, those who are called his brothers and sisters, God's children. Like those faithful to God in Isaiah's day, we should stay true to Christ and ignore the advice that would distract us from following him. Verse 14 is next. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, 
and only by dying could he break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. The question is, this verse clearly presents the reason why Jesus had to become human. What is that reason? Death is a common fear and a final experience of all people, and only as a human being made of flesh and blood could Christ die, because only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. His death and his return to life showed that death had been defeated. Now, sin and death are interconnected. I hope you can see that. Sin results in death. Only by first breaking the power of sin could Christ break the power of death. He accomplished both through his death and resurrection. In these acts, Christ dealt the final blow to both Satan and death. Although Satan still holds great power over this world, he is mortally wounded. God allows Satan to work, but he limits him. I'd encourage you to read Job chapter 1, starting with about verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 6. Just as salvation is partly realized now and will be fully realized later in God's kingdom, so Satan is still at work, but will one day be destroyed. Revelation 20, verse 10. Thank you, Jesus. Verse 15 is next. Only in this way could he set free all who've lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. The question is, continuing his thoughts from the previous verse, what is the writer saying about our freedom here? People have always been slaves to the fear of dying. That's what it says. And eventually death strikes everyone. We know that. But through Christ, we no longer need to fear death or dying. Christ died and rose again. And only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves. Because Jesus died and arose, we no longer need to be enslaved to the fear of dying. We know that because Jesus rose from the dead, we will also. We will die physically, but we are promised new bodies and a new life in eternity with God. So death becomes a gateway to a new life. Verse 16 is next. You're doing great, beloved. Let's finish strong. We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. The question is, what does the writer say was the purpose of Jesus coming to us? God sent Jesus to die for people, the descendants of Abraham, it says in the verse. These were lost in their sin. Some believe that phrase refers only to the Jews, but Jesus had explained that it was through faith in him that people became Abraham's true descendants. Jesus was born as a Jew, a descendant of Abraham. His death and resurrection offered salvation to all humanity, both Jews and Gentiles. Abraham's descendants are all who share Abraham's faith. Christ did not become an angel. He became a human in order to help humans. Verse 17, it says, Therefore it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. The question is, why was it necessary for Jesus to become exactly like us? Jesus Christ became like us, his brothers and sisters, as it said, so that he could become our merciful and faithful high priest. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the mediator between God and the people, but Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurated a new covenant. Under the Old Covenant, the high priest had to go before God once a year. Jesus' death accomplished forgiveness once and for all for those who believe in him. Christ performed perfectly and completely the duties of a high priest. So the writer calls him our high priest, our representative before God. Jesus became like us in every respect, except for the sinful nature. Only in this way could he offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. That sacrifice was his life. 
A holy God cannot overlook sin, so the sinfulness of humanity had to be punished. In the Old Testament, God required his people to sacrifice animals, perfect animals, without blemish, healthy and whole. They were sacrificed to atone for their sins. At the right time, God dealt once and for all with sin and its ultimate consequence, death and eternal separation from God. Instead of sending all humanity to eternal punishment, God took the punishment himself. Sin had to be punished, but Jesus shed his blood. He gave his life to take away our sins so that we would not have to experience spiritual death. His sacrifice, it transforms our lives and hearts, and it makes us clean on the inside. Gosh, that is such an encouraging and profound scripture and truth, isn't it? Thank you, Jesus, for that. Now, here's our last verse for today. Verse 18, it rounds out chapter 2. Since he himself had gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. The final question today is, what does this verse tell you about how Jesus can relate to you, especially in difficult times? Let me just say right off the bat, isn't it great to know that God understands what suffering and testing is because he went through a horrific period of time? That is a, such an encouragement to me. You know, Jesus came to earth as a human being, so he understands my weakness. He understands your weakness, and he shows mercy to us. Because he was fully human, Jesus himself has gone through suffering and testing. This suffering refers not only to the cross, but also to the temptations that he experienced throughout his life, from Satan's temptations in the wilderness to the drops of blood he shed in prayer before his crucifixion. Now, having gone through all the tests and temptations of human life, Jesus, as the scripture said, is able to help us when we're being tested. Beloved, if you're being tested today, if you're going through difficult times, I would encourage you, seek the Lord. If you haven't already done so, talk to him. He's right there with you. He's already been there, done that, and has the blood-stained hands and feet to show you. He can help. He's able to help us. That's what it said. And if you believe the scripture is true, then believe what it just said here in this last verse. Jesus is able to help us when we're being tested. Wow, what another great study. This chapter, it seems like it just went by so fast, but there's so much incredible information to know. Let me see if I can recap it for you real quick. Right away, we saw that Hebrews chapter two, did you notice it continued the main theme of chapter one, which was Jesus' superiority over angels? We also studied additional Old Testament quotes that supported that point and also saw that the writer of Hebrews, he warned against the dangers of ignoring the message of Christ and referred to the way Christ became human in order to perfectly serve as our ultimate high priest. What an incredible journey. Now, next week, we're going to study chapter three, and we're going to talk about another great topic. Christ is greater than Moses. I want to thank you for being with us today. It's been a joy to have you. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day and week. We'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.